everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Macrovisor podcast. I'm joined by my wonderful co-host Aisha and we've got a special guest. I'm excited to be talking to Weston Nakamura today from across the spread. Weston, welcome to the show. For readers out there or listeners out there of Macrovisor that aren't familiar with your work, why don't we start off talking a little bit more about your background? Uh, yes. Hi, um, both uh, to Aisha and Mayhem Son, if uh, if I can call you that. Um, thank you for having me on uh, on your podcast. Uh, big fan. Um, yeah. So, uh, just for my background, I suppose uh, you know I I talk about this um, you know sometimes because it's a very unusual sort of way into finance. But um, I got into institutional finance not in a, any traditional way in any uh, way, shape, or form. Basically, what I did was so. First of all, I have a very, very terrible academic record, and I knew nothing. I didn't know what a bond yield was maybe like you know ten years ago or so. Um, well, maybe 10, 15 years ago or so. Um, basically, two thousand eight financial crisis is when I kind of woke up to the world of finance. I realized how uh, massively significant it was, um, it, you know, in in society as a whole. And then I decided there, then and there, that I really for purposes of job security, I needed to join a too big to fail bank. Um, that just seemed like the reality to me. No, like every other profession seemed to be hinged upon if the people that, you know, move digital piece of paper around the world, if they mess up, then your business is going under and the government will save those who move green and red blinking tickers around the world. So um, easier said than done. Um, and so what I did was in 2013, when Abenomics launched, I kind of recognized that as my kind of one opportunity, long shot opportunity to maybe get into institutional finance because I recognize that there's going to be a, a ton of foreign capital flooding into Japan. And so if I, you know, can exploit my last name, I'm, I'm born and raised in the United States, but if I can exploit my Japanese last name, go to Japan, boots on the ground, and just be in some sort of like client facing role um, with foreign investors who want some sort of, you know, exposure to some Japan financial product, whatever it may be, then I could be that point person. And so I kind of just uprooted my life. I, you know, said goodbye to my beloved friends and family in, in, in New York. And I got a one-way ticket to Tokyo with a suitcase. And it really, I had nothing. I had no place to live. I had no, <laughs> I had no job, no offer. Um, I could barely speak the language and uh, no place to live. And, you know, I had just 7-Eleven dinners and all that, just hopping around various kind of seedy hotels. But I was, um, you know, knocking down the door of financial institutions everywhere. And then Goldman Sachs took notice of all firms. And then, uh, you know, they um, they interviewed me and they interviewed me again and again. And 20 some odd interviews later, I was at the listed 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 derivatives, futures and options trading desk at Goldman Tokyo. So that was my way into um, uh, institutional finance. So not a very typical way at all. Um, and then after that, um, that was a great role because I was, you know, at the futures desk, you're connected with every other sort of team and, and every other, um, you know, division within the securities um, d department. So like the, the single stock equity traders, the cash equity traders, you're talking to the FX guys, you're talking to the JGB traders. Um, we're, we're, we're trading not just index futures like Nikkei Topics, um, E-minis and all that, but we're trading rates, futures, we're trading, you know, um, currency futures, crude oil, gold options, what what have you, and so it was a truly cross asset sort of over overview. And that was the year when I first started in 2014 uh, at Goldman. That uh, that basically Halloween um, of that year is when 
the Bank of Japan Kuroda did the, his second massive shock QQE part two. Um, and, uh, you know, it was supposed to be a sleepy day and the suddenly just phones lit up, the Bloomberg's like lit up, like everything. And we were just getting just one way buy orders and the Nikkei rallied like 5% into the close and 5% after. And, uh, I realized like, I, I mean, I was just billions of dollars, like, you know, going through my hands thinking like, oh my God, like these central banks are like it's insane how much how much firepower that they have and how much they can sway markets like so quickly and so i really started to pay attention to that um i moved over to jeffrey's um i did hedge fund equity sales long short equity um mostly um and then i entered the world of uh i guess if you want to call it financial content creating um with real vision then over to BlockWorks Macro to host the Market Depth podcast as of recent. And then I am currently uh, starting uh, out on my own independently to broaden out Market Depth in um, not just the podcast suite, but more so with a more interactive experience and including written content as well and sort of different sort of things that, uh, that I'm currently launching and working on. Very long-winded answer, so... <laughs> No, that's absolutely so interesting. I love to hear about how people get their starts. Um, so I was in banking as well, right? But I was a corporate banker. And we used to hate the traders. Like most of the people would hate <laughs> the traders. So, um, But funnily enough, most of the traders were like really good friends with me. Um, I really enjoyed the fact, yeah, because I, I really enjoyed the fact that they had, you know, a pulse on the market. So And they had a mm. lot to teach me. Um, and for my part, it was all about how much I could learn from just anyone, anywhere, you know. So sure. I made sure to make friends even with the traders. <laughs> but really interesting journey, Weston. So right now you're launching your own, um, I want to say, venture. Is that right? Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a platform. Okay. So like I don't want to call it just a podcast because it's just, you know, again, it's a multimedia. So it's a platform and it's interactive as well. It's not just one-way presentation. It's a discussion back and forth. Perfect. So it's going to be a website called Across the Spread. Is that right? Yeah. So um, acrossthespread.com is where you can, is everything centralized. Um, and from there you can find things to like, uh, you know, my, I've launched an entirely brand new YouTube channel from scratch um, and my uh, podcast platforms be it spotify apple podcasts um also my written content will be there it's currently on substack um but um and then anything else that rolls out thereafter as well um you know it'll all be kind of centralized at um at my website which is at acrossspread.com which is happened to be down at the time of this recording and it was we're currently rushing to get it up <laughs> immediately so hopefully it will be up by the time that this uh recording airs but uh yeah that's that's where um that's where everything will be centralized. Excellent. So at least now everybody knows where to find you and your new project. So Thank just so to much. get into just to get into things, um, we were talking about earlier how you were talking about um, your focus as in Asia global bond yields mm -hmm. and how they affect um, markets across the globe, right? So it's not so mm -hmm. much about investing directly. Your focus is not so much about investing directly into Asia, but more so how the Asian markets influence the world. Am I right? 
Absolutely, absolutely correct. Yeah, you nailed it. So basically, um, yeah, I should, probably should have clarified the the mission statement of across the spread. But um, for anyone who is uh, who ever followed the the Market Depth podcast or even my work on Real Vision, what I try to do is uh, I'm not necessarily trying to give any sort of uh, takes on investing into Asia, although there's certainly going to be overlap. But uh, I'm everything, anything that I say or or you know comment on or you know do do a piece on. The reason I'm doing that is because I'm speaking to a Western audience, ex-Asia, who needs to know this information, um, developments that are happening in Asia that are affecting your portfolio, your S&P 500 portfolio, or your Eurostox portfolio, or your um, your holdings in you know, uh, French OETs or whatever they may be, or UK gilts or any sort of global macro impact stemming from Asia. And the reason really is because um, not, the, it is so undercovered, in, even in terms of just financial media wise. Um, you know, I, I was recently back in, back in the US and I was trying to get information of what happened overnight in the trading, you know, day, um, the, the, the trading session. And you really can't find anything. Everything is very, very Fed and Western based. Um, or I guess if you're in Europe, it's very, you know, ECB and European based. And that's fine. There should be that. But to ignore this entire third of the, the world, which for which the IMF had at least said, uh, you know, 70% of global growth would be coming from. Um, obviously, that <laughs> it's not really the case with China. Um, that was earlier this year. But no- nonetheless, I mean, this is a huge, huge uh, area that uh, both on a relative basis, like for it to be undercovered, and then just an absolute basis for it to be undercovered. It's, a, I mean, I think it's, um, th- there are, it, there are so many investors out there that do not do not even factor that into their kind of um, process or their, their thinking. And it, I'm doing this to not really give like a heads up, but more so it's more so like an information arb. Like there are, um, there are, there are kind of very simple things that uh, if you just knew about that occurred over the the trading session, then you wouldn't have to, um, you know, point to the fed for every single market move. That's unexplainable. Oh, absolutely. I completely agree with you. In fact, that's something that we're doing at Macrovisor as well. So we, we can be like sister concerns here um, <laughs> in the sense that, you know, you're absolutely right. And one thing that I cover every morning in my free breakfast bites is a focus on China and Japan um, and Europe and Australia as well, to a certain extent, mainly because, you know, I wake up earlier than uh, the U.S. I'm in Dubai and I can get some of that information you know, into play before, you know, the U.S. wakes up. And it's so important for people to understand what else is going on in the world because it obviously now the world is global and everything affects everyone. And um, so speaking of which, let's talk about global bond yields. I know this is a particular focus for you. Um, so what are you thinking about global bond yields at the moment? Yeah, um, I, th- I think it's a Focus for for many, not just for me. <laughs> certainly for you guys as well. Um, but uh, um, l- 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 if I can just make one more point, um, yeah, I know that you're in Dubai because um, I see you sometimes on like like Bloomberg um, TV Live or something like that. And you actually happen to be in a great air- zone where you're straddling the end of the Asia trading session 
into the year session in sandwich in between the US. So I think that you're in like a great sort of zone right there. And you might be more global for that reason, um, what you're thinking. But uh but um but yeah, so the way that um that I'm looking at this is so all right. So so DM sovereign yields are obviously spiking um, and accelerating uh, that spike over over the last call it uh, few weeks or so. Um, and actually, I could pinpoint it down to a date, which would be what July 28th is kind of when it started. And there at the time when it fir- when that's first that first maybe one or two weeks, it was chalked up to three things. Number one, and this is not in any particular order, but um, number one, Fitch downgrades the United States from investment grade down to investment grade. All right. Number two is that uh, there was the they the they basically released the um, amount of debt issuance uh, supp- a, a supply, you know, the U.S. Treasury, um, and it was more than uh, I guess the primary dealers um, in aggregate had uh, on average had expected. And then number three was the Bank of Japan had just changed their yield curve control policy on the 28th or the 27th Bank of Japan meeting. So at least the Bank of Japan did make it in there. But now, but and but that yield rise has continued since then. And that Bank of Japan story has kind of largely dropped off. So right now, what are the narratives? It is, again, it's still this like um, this, this supply issue, uh, the, the, you know, the, the issue of, of, of supply of, of new issuance and who is going to mop that up. Um, and then it is also these concerns about uh, the fiscal state of the U.S. Treasury. And so therefore, I guess that ties into the Fitch thing. Um, but the Bank of Japan part has kind of fallen off of that broader you know, discussion. And I think that it should not be falling off uh, at all. And I actually think that that is of one of the, you know, probably of those three, it is the most significant uh, of those. So um, I don't want to discount those. I'm not saying that those other reasons don't are, are insignificant. They're absolutely significant. They're absolutely real. And there's no one driver of any asset class, let alone one of the most uh, widely held markets and widely, you know, looked at uh, markets in the, in the world, the United States Treasury market. But um, I would like to just give some more color as to this forgotten piece, the Bank of Japan part of it, or the Japan part of it as a whole, given that Japan is the largest foreign fixed income investor. And so what happens at the domestic monetary policy and you know, um, having the central bank increase the cap, the artificial cap on rates to, you know, to double uh, suddenly, um, uh, on that very day that kicked off this this uh, yield sell-off or this uh, this bond sell-off and yield spike, I think that that's something worthy of discussing um, just as much as the other matters. Yeah, I think those are all very, very important points, Weston, and actually gives us a great segue to talk really more about what's going on with the Bank of Japan. You mentioned some key areas One of which is, you know, when we look at the Bank of Japan and the amount of sovereign duration and really just debt buying and equity exposure they have, their balance sheet is larger than any other central banks in terms of its total size versus the economy of Japan. They have been incredibly aggressive, comparatively speaking, such that now the Bank of Japan owns about 55% of the issuance of Japanese debt, and which is interesting because the Japanese government also owns about 
55% of the Bank of Japan. It kind of almost looks, when you zoom out really far, a, little, a bit like an Ouroboros, you know, or a snake eating its own tail. So what really is the end game here? Because the Bank of Japan has been the last in really global central banks to just slowly start tugging on unwinding this very aggressive negative interest rate policy and yield curve control. And that does, as you've wisely said, it has global implications on fixed income. It seems to be one of several reasons that global rates have had such a big thrust upwards, particularly over the last several months. But really, if we're looking back at the trend, we're going back two and a half years now to really the first half of 2021 when this whole process of unwinding started, this sort of global deleveraging. What are your thoughts about that over the longer term? Can the Bank of Japan unwind this historic monetary policy experiment without breaking something bigger? Um, so just th that answer is no, um, they cannot. Um, but let's uh, let's recap all, all that, you, that you said. So first of all, I think that you're the first person that um, that I've heard actually recognize that the Bank of Japan is... Uh, owned the bank. The, by the way, Bank Japan is a publicly traded stock. For those who don't know, it's not. It's not like a normal stock, but there is actually a stock ticker eight three zero one Japan. Um, I, you can buy shares. It doesn't really mean anything, but uh, yeah, government owns it. The Bank Japan does own uh, about one hundred twenty percent of um, its. You know, the, the size of the QE, the size of the balance sheet is one hundred twenty percent of its GDP. That's more than double the ECB, which is the next runner up when they were at their peak. So absolutely correct in terms of the unprecedented scale of um, monetary, uh, you know, experimentation um, that Bank Japan has been embarking on. Um, now, when you own, as you correctly say, when you own f over half of the outstanding float of JGBs of Japanese government debt, and you're setting the price on the other half that is, quote, freely available to trade in the secondary market um, but via yield curve control and artificially suppressing yields down. I mean, it, it's a small child could see that the world's most indebted nation at 260% debt to GDP borrowing 10 years out at less than 1% while the risk-free United States government has to do pay, you know, five, five, five-fold that for that same duration. Or, or for one year out, for that matter. Um, that doesn't really make any sense economically. Um, and it is clearly the Bank of Japan that is allowing for those quote-unquote markets to price and behave in that way. So the Bank of Japan is essentially uh, keeping, you know, borrowing costs down in the United States, uh, in, in Japan and um, such that there there is basically no yield um, in, you know, in Japan and hasn't has not been for a very long time. Meanwhile, Japan is cash rich, yield starved, and so when you do something like radical monetary experimentation, things like yield curve control, where you pin the ten year, you have a negative interest rate at the front end, um, the actual policy rate itself, uh, since January of 2016, and then from since September of 2016, you have rolled out yield curve control in which you're pinning the ten year, the longer end, which is not supposed to be a policy rate, but they've made it a policy rate. Um, at quote unquote around zero, um, I don't care if it's 50 basis points or uh, 1%, if you're pinning it at around zero, um, what you're doing is you're pushing trillions and trillions of Japanese capital overseas um, in search of yield. And so that's how Japan has the largest net international investment position in the world. That's how Japan is one of, you know, is the largest foreign creditor to the United States 
um, foreign owner of the you know U.S. U.S. debt, uh, as well as you know in various other sovereigns, you know perhaps a sovereign near you that you're you know wherever you may be, um, you know if you, from where you're listening, as well as into credit markets and shady areas of credit and CLOs and so on and so forth. Um, this is what happens with um, when you have rates on the floor with with a, pool, a massive pool of capital that is in need of uh, you so um, at, and, and, and then once again and then you have the the government with in, in just horrendous f- uh, fiscal situation so in terms of the end game um, I, I don't necessarily know how to when or how to time uh, you know th- that or define the time of that but what I will say is that Japan is the bank of Japan is not you're going to be like ripping off this band-aid of yield curve control like ever because the if if they allow for jgb yields to trade at whatever the markets decide that the you know japanese debt or or borrowing cost should be that is going to eat up more than the entire budget of the, the fiscal budget of the japanese government given that currently a quarter of the budget goes to debt and debt servicing um, costs, and then you're only you have demographic pickers that are only skewing towards less tax receipts, more um, you know uh, uh, government spending, and therefore more JGB issuance. So clearly, the point of yield curve control and the point of QE and QQE and all of these this radical experimentation that the Bank of Japan has been doing is really nothing to do with inflation. Um, it's the reason that they're doing this is so that Japan as a country can remain solvent and operate as a normal developed nation, period. Um, so, you know, for that reason alone, it, you know, I, I, I don't see how they would do that to themselves. That's the thing, is that it would be done to... The, this is not some sort of external matter that's being done. Uh, it's being done to themselves. The currency is a different story, which we get into later, but... In terms of their, um, you know, their priority, the priority first and foremost is this is their is their debt burden. So if the Bank of Japan, essentially, if the Ministry of Finances is, is issuing a, a whole bunch of JGBs, so, such that there's about one quadrillion yen outstanding, okay, one quadrillion yen is one thousand trillion yen of JGBs outstanding, and the Bank of Japan owns over you know five hundred trillion yen worth of those JGBs. And setting the price and on the the longer end, um, that is done not for again not to stoke inflation or anything like that. It might have started that way, um, but currently it is there so that the, the Japanese government does not go 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 belly up, um, and and th- th- that situation is not going to improve the fiscal situation uh, anytime anytime soon. You also functionally you cannot start to unwind and sell securities for which half of what you own into a market that you've destroyed like liquidity and you know um availability of um lest you want those yields to get blown up in your face on you know to to themselves so everything that like anything that they do they're going to inflict pain upon themselves to do and that will naturally prevent them at some point from um from from doing that um and the one last point i want to make about um you know, I don't, I don't want to just have this point glossed over when I say like, it has nothing to do with inflation. But the Bank of Japan policy as of 
call it the last few years, really has nothing to do with inflation, especially the last two times that they increased their yield curve control bands, which was in December of 2022. And most recently, this past uh, what end of July of 2023, that kicked off this yield surge uh, globally. Um, so basically, when those things happened, they were uh, the Bank of Japan attributed those to market functionality or market dysfunctionality. There's a lot of dysfunction in JGB market um, in December. You have this like kink in the yield curve in which ten-year US uh, or ten-year JGB yields were trading lower than nine-year and eight-year uh, JGB yields. And not only that, but eight and nine-year JGB yields were trading above the yield curve control band. So it was a very, very messed up uh, yield curve. You had the Bank of Japan owning over 100% of certain issuances of uh, JGBs. So like issue number 365 or 366 or whatever it is, they have essentially owned the entire float. And then in some cases, they own more than 100% of float, which is made possible because when they own 100%, then they lend it out. And then so therefore, they um, they they therefore own own technically own more on paper than exists um, on supply. That is uh, that is a completely like almost irreparable um, bond market um, that that cannot function. Um, and so if left to its own devices, you're just going to see this massive blow up in uh, in, in, in the JGB market, which is going to spill out um, across the world. So for the sake of financial stability across the world, you know, the Bank of Japan c- cannot just just rip the the bandaid off and back to the inflation part if the if the kind of narrative right now is that the if japan is getting inflation you know um even though in real terms you know factoring wages um or the lack thereof uh wage inflation you know you're certainly not getting um you know real, uh real wage inflation but if japan is going to if the bank of japan is going to be quote unquote uh tightening policy because of inflation appearing in japan i do not buy that um at either because it isn't yield curve control policy that got japan this very inflation to begin with japan was experiencing no inflation with years and years of yield curve control going on in the background such that they amassed half you know half of the government um debt outstanding the reason that Japan has uh, inflation is because of global inflation for which Japan is not immune to. And so if if yield curve control did not, it was not the cause of inflation, how would the removal of yield curve control solve Japan's inflation? It wouldn't. They don't have any tie together. So once again, I'm just going to wrap it back to the reason that yield curve control exists is to keep the government solvent and operable. Wow, that was really interesting. Um, honestly, I don't think most people even think of the situation in Japan this way. Most of us are looking at it at a very, let's say, high level in the sense that, okay, at some point, the year of control will have to come to an end and we're probably getting closer to that point. However, what you've made very, very clear is that it's not as easy as everyone is making it out to be. So when you read some of the bank research and stuff like that, they're making it out to be as if, you know, um, you wave a wand and your curve control is gone and everything's fine and hunky-dory again, you know? Uh, But what you've just highlighted is so very important in understanding that 
they can't just do it off the bat. They, they're going to have to take steps um, to make sure that a, their bond market doesn't blow up, their fiscal policies don't blow up, and the country doesn't blow up, right? So uh, exactly. very interesting discussion. Thank you so much for that. Um, so yeah. it, just oh, following on from that, then where do you see uh, Japanese equities? So we know that, you know, Japanese equities have been getting, you know, a nice little boost from everything that's been going on, particularly the inflation <laughs> that's coming from the outside, right? So this is imported inflation more than anything else. Um, mm -hmm. So where do you see uh, Japanese equities? And then uh, where do you see uh, the Japanese yen from here? Sure. So the equity um, story is quite spectacular for Japan. Um, the For the better half of the first half of 2023 calendar year, 2023, can't believe I'm about to say this, but the Nikkei index, the Topics Banks index, um, the Japanese equities were by far the outperformer <laughs> around the world, uh, global equities, global equity markets. Um, quite an incredible feat. Um, and really um, moving tick for tick with, uh, it's between about April to end of July or so, moving tick for tick with the NASDAQ or the NDX 100. Um, and, and that's an sort of, um, you know, upside that, that the, the U.S. Uh, tech stocks had experienced, which is really led by, as you guys know, you know, just a handful of names. Um, so that there are several reasons why. People, you know, people who are actually long, the institutional investors and, and foreigners who are long, um, Japan point to. And by the way, you're absolutely correct that this is all for, this is a, the, the rally has been foreign uh, inflow driven. Um, it has not been domestically, domestic retail or domestic institutions for that matter. If anything, that's that they've been sellers into that rally, but it has been almost purely um, foreign dri uh, capital driven. And it ha that was kicked off by Mr. Warren Buffett's uh, seal of endorsement. Um, that's really what made the difference. All the reasons, things like improving corporate governance, the Bank of Japan is still easing, there's no imminent recession risk, so on and so forth. Yeah, those are all fine reasons, but those none of those are new. Those had existed, like extremely low, um, you know, PE multiples or whatever they may be had, it's the, you know, it's a characteristic of Japanese equities, the value trap and all that. Um, you could call it value trap, you could call it value investing, but the value label still exists nonetheless. Um, so none of those things changed. Those things, what, what changed was that Warren Buffett stamp of, of approval um, and in conjunction with, and we get into this as well later, but um, you know this, this very, very wrong-sided bet of everybody being extremely bullish, like almost one way unanimously bullish China going into the year, getting quickly, quickly uh, destroyed on that position and then reallocating their a lot of their Asia equity exposure over to Japan. And so Japan is a net sort of beneficiary of that as well. Um, but really what it comes down to is just that there are global international equity you know, investors or multi-strat portfolios. They need to allocate uh, capital somewhere, but they could also, they could also sit in, you know, um, and collect 5% or 4% at the time um, risk-free in, in U.S. treasuries. You, you got paid to, to kind of wait out for the first half of the year, especially coming off of a horrendous, you know, 2022 um, in equity markets. And so those that were active um, that in, the, in equity land uh, were basically putting their money into 
one of there were two two themes going on in in the first half of 2022. One was the long Japan trade. The other one's the long AI trade. Long AI trade we're all very familiar with, um, but the long Japan trade is also um, they were moving kind of neck neck and in, in, in tandem. And the the funny thing is is that the Nikkei index in Japan that broke through that thirty thousand level cap um, and then just kept rising and rising and rising thereafter in tandem with like the the Sox index and and the Nasdaq one hundred and all that. Um, that was that's not. You know that's not Japanese capital. That's American capital. That's foreign capital. A lot of it's American capital, such that the Nikkei index, like I, I would say in my you know previous podcast, it might as well be like a U.S. index. It's just it's a lot of it is just U.S. funds um, and U.S. fund managers and U.S. Uh, investors' capital, to the point where you know it's not a coincidence that you start to see the top of the Nikkei. Um, occur around that week of July 4th where United you know US investors were out of the market and therefore you know see, see the sort of activity there um, so because of so much of it is foreign driven um, and that that would basically mean that um, first of all it's it could be very it's susceptible to like a sharp pullback because this is the most disloyal capital is what i call uh you know like foreign capital into japan it's the last to be added to portfolios and the first to go out when something goes wrong and that was we saw evidence of that about three or four weeks ago when we had weekly data coming out coming out of the ministry of finance showing that uh it was the largest net sell um from foreign stock ownership out of japan um on record um, you know, just in, in one week, a lot of that seemed like forced selling um, and just profit taking on a lot of the names, the, the, the Warren Buffett names, the, the semiconductor names that, um, that had, you know, that rose so much. Um, but what it means is that there's two things is that this, the, the, and, you know, uh, Aisha, maybe you could uh, back me up on this, but the buy side uh, and the sell side seems to still be extremely kind of one sided bullish Japan. Everyone is very constructive on Japan. Nobody is really like, you know, anti that's the, the, the other side of that trade, which means that there's a lot of people that missed out and you have this pullback. You have, you're waiting toward, you know, but you're still above the 30,000 level on, on Nikkei. And I think that if you're going to be going, if investors are going to be going long DM equities um, from an index level, they, they would be going in uh, back into Japan on this this pullback. And then you also have domestic investors who, if they were instead long like the Russell 2000, because there's a bias with Japanese um, equity investors, institutional equity investors, that the grass is always greener outside of Japan, especially in America. Um, and if you're underperforming because you own... Um, you're taking currency risk and you're, t- you're owning an index like, you know, in the, the, in U- the U.S. or Europe or wherever it may be, and you're underperforming. And meanwhile, your home base is outperforming and you have no exposure to that. That is not good. So I think that you're going to get also uh, domestic participation um, in should there be this next leg up. Um, so I see the provided that the rest of the global DM equity complex rises, um, then decay to outperform to the upside. Um, that's that's how I see it. And if and if not, I don't really see see a situation where Japan would crash and the other markets are kind of fine, um, uh, even though that's occurred you know many times in the past. Because once again, this is uh, this is foreign capital that's doing this, right? Like the one thing that I was uh, sorry, sorry, uh, like uh, to, to add so many points to this, but the one of the big themes was that there was um, a lack of equity market breadth in the United States in the beginning of uh, 2023. 
Well, where do you think that equity market breadth went? It went to Japan. You know, the equity market breadth is very wide and deep in Japan, and it was basically, quote unquote, stolen from the US, along with the capital, along with the upside. Um, the, the, the names that are traded are only five or six names in the US, but there are thousands of names on the topics that are being, you know, um, that are, that are seeing you know, inflows from, from foreigners. So that's why I'm saying that there's, it's very hard for me to see like a, a Japan only downside crash in the equity market, but I could also see an outperformance to the upside once again, just because people saw it already from this half of the year and they can, they just need to see, a, you know, some momentum and then momentum will feed upon itself. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, when it comes to the flows and the macro, you're spot on, obviously. Um, and you, you've illustrated it very, very well here. So, and just to add to your point, in terms of the fundamentals as well, I think, um, so Japan, obviously, <laughs> we know this since we were kids. It's been a very depressed market, right? And so price to book, <laughs> the price to book, fundamentally speaking, is very, very low, still very low compared to any other market in the world. So you look at any other country, Japan is extremely undervalued, even at this stage, even after these rallies, right? And so that on the one hand, you have very undervalued securities, which are now doing well, and these are good companies, um, but for one reason or the other, they didn't attract a lot of capital. And on the other hand, now that you have money pouring into the stock market and you have money pouring into these equities, um, I think what we're going to see is, and this is particularly for the trading companies, we're going to see a lot of reinvestments, right? So you're going to have you know, more capital investments. You, and uh, even though with yields higher, it, it doesn't matter because now you have the capital, you have the money pouring in. And I think that in itself is also going to give um, you know, fundamentally speaking, it's going to give the companies a boost. So you have the banks doing better because of higher yields. And then you also have these trading companies who will sort of, uh, let's say, plow back the capital and use it to grow further. So I think all in all, you're absolutely right. I, I don't think the Japanese equity story is over now that it, we've got it started. I think there's far more upside to this than most people can imagine. Can I, I just want to add something. I was listening to a podcast of you guys talking about recently about uh, Japan, China, and you were talking about Warren Buffett specifically with his investments in those five trading houses and how you were talking about it as if that was, you know, in, in the context of that was a macro trade um, uh, and a, a phenomenal one at that. And I totally agree with you. And I just wanted to kind of give a little bit more, uh, you know, add a little bit more sort of background context that the reason that that is what what Warren Buffett did in um, really in starting in August 2020 is when he first took these stakes in these Japanese trading houses um, but he upped his stakes in you know as of April this year um, and thus you know sparking this equity rally uh, in Japan this foreign capital led equity rally the reason it's such a brilliant macro trade um, is that in August of 2020 Warren Buffett essentially went long these trading houses, which are these trading houses are they're giant conglomerates that hold, uh, you know, they have each of them with a thousand plus subsidiaries that range that's full, you know, a full range of like, like they have convenience stores, they have like, you know, a uh, global sort of interest everywhere, but they're because they're so complicated, the stocks just by and large trade with commodity prices. They rise and fall with commodity prices, generally speaking. So they're commodity plays. So what he did essentially was he went equal weight across the board, meaning not really doing any fundamental bottom-up analysis and just doing a sort of sector 
um, and he borrow he he borrows JPY rates at basically zero, and he funds these long equity positions. So essentially, what Buffett did in August of 2020 was he went short bonds and long commodities before interest rates and commodities blasted upwards and through the roof. So that's why it's a phenomenal, brilliant macro trade. And again, it is indeed a macro trade and not a bottom up sort of stock picking trade, because like I said, he's equal weight across these five of the largest trading houses. So I just want to add that point because I heard you guys talking about it. And so. So you're absolutely right. I, I don't think most people give Warren Buff Buffett enough credit in terms of being a macro trader. Everybody thinks he's just a stock picker, as we were discussing earlier. Everybody thinks he's just looking at balance sheets and that's the end of it. But I think he's far more savvy than that, obviously. And he's looking at ma the macro from you know a different perspective in terms of timing, in terms of how to or wh when it's best to, let's say, invest. Because if you look at the timing of his trades, if you look at the timing of his investments, a lot of it is driven by the macro, by the way. And sure, he of course, he'll look at the balance sheet, he'll look at the companies before he gets in, but he'll only do it if it makes sense um, from, you know, a more, let's say, from the standpoint of where the economy is. Right. So I don't think people give him enough credit for being he, he doesn't like to forecast the macro, but I think he trades the macro very well, uh, better than any trader I probably know. <laughs> yeah, uh, actually, Mr. Mayhem, sir, if I if I can, um, if you can indulge me on my one of my conspiracy theories um, that uh, just as I was saying. So, I mean, so his case for going long was that there's there's value in these trading houses and they're paying massive dividends and, and so on and so forth. Okay, well, they have been uh, like deeply quote undervalued or trading, you know, uh, at below book or whatever they were. Um, but then why up the stake now? And more specifically, why did he come? Why did this 90 year old fly from Omaha all the way to Tokyo? It's a long flight. Um, in April this year, and on the very day that the new Bank of Japan governor started, um, why was he in Tokyo to meet these companies and give them a pat on the back and say, hey, keep it up, fellas, you're doing great. That's all. Just wanted to say that in person. Um, or perhaps did he want to check in with the new BOJ regime that the previous one had allowed him to borrow, borrow at rates on the floor to fund these equity stakes. And I'm not saying that he any insider information or anything, but you know, Warren Buffett can get a meeting with Fed Chair Powell. He can certainly get a meeting with rookie new guy in his first day uh, at the Bank of Japan. But what do you think of it in terms of timing wise? Or was this just a trip because he likes, you know, he likes the sushi? <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think it's a, it's a really interesting question. And Look, at the end of the day, we are small fish swimming in a sea full of sharks and whales. And so we kind of see these things happening in our periphery and we can't help but to question, do they have the inside track? Or is it just that, you know, Mr. Buffett really is the Oracle of Omaha, that he's that plugged in, that he has this sense that, you know, there's this eventual turnabout that's going to happen. One of the, the biggest, uh, most active central bank players out there kind of eventually saying, look, 
we're not going to rip out the rip off the band-aid like you said but at the very least we're going to have this gradual swinging of the pendulum from over easing back closer towards tightening but not yet in that territory and that's such a seismic shift for a country that's been really the greatest monetary policy experiment in human history by any objective measure. And so for Buffett, I feel like, you know, he may have had the inside track or he may have just understood implicitly that as this pendulum begins to shift under new leadership, who's beginning to say, you know what, the old way wasn't necessarily what we want to do, but we also can't just go out and change it all of a sudden. And and um, one of the things Aisha has talked about a lot is that the new leadership in Japan, uh, Ueda, is much more of an academic. So it's much mm -hmm. more likely he's going to take this gradual approach and not really, you know, shuffle up the deck chairs too much. And so Buffett, probably having a, a lot more knowledge and connectivity about all this, visited to get a lay of the land and realized, you know what? This would be such a great opportunity to be able to sell debt that I know is going to be worth so much less. And yet there's going to be a huge appetite for it as well. And at the same time, invest in equities and take advantage of this big rotation. As you aptly pointed out, lots of foreign flows are coming into Japanese equities. They have pretty well positive correlation between the Nikkei and the NASDAQ. Like you said, I mean, I've been tracking that as well. I think it's absolutely fascinating and it speaks to those foreign flows and that correlation of a lot of funds trying to leverage back into risk and finding wherever there's momentum. And so I feel like he's really showing himself to be this very savvy macro trader, very plugged in, not not really seen for that. I mean, like, like you all have wisely said, it's much more about, hey, he's this value investor. He really looks at the bottom up, but I think he really looks at all, all angles. And I would actually go on to speculate that his Taiwan semi-trade was mm. a technical trade that it was, you know, was a macro and technical trade because it was in and out in a matter of months. Mm -hmm. That's not long-term. That's not, you know, sort of value investing. That's not bottom up. That's much more. I see an opportunity and, and other funds that were macro funds, you know, ostensibly were, were moving in and out of this trade during that same time frame. And I think that he is a player in many different ways, just like we saw him operate during the great financial crisis, getting stakes in Goldman Sachs and other banks. And really at these very, preferred uh, uh, levels of being able to issue debt and getting like 8, 10% interest at a time of 0% interest rates and having these sweetheart deals be able to convert the warrants into equity. I mean, and this was at a time when things were bottoming out. And there was no way to just look at it from value and say, you know what, these things must be worth something. You had to be plugged into the macro. So I think going back, he's got a long track record and it's, it's what makes him so exemplary at what he does as to look at things from multiple different vantage points and really get an idea of, of how they all come together, the bigger pieces of the puzzle. And that is a nice segue here, I think, the kind of idea that all these pieces of the puzzle fit together. Japan's biggest trading partner is China at nearly 22%. The United States is a close number two. What happens in China, what happens in the U.S. really matters to the Japanese economy. But what happens in China really matters to the rest of the world as well. It's the second biggest economy, and it's struggling here. We're seeing some signs that retail sales and GDP might be beginning to recover out of a long trough. But at the same time, this is a government that has been hesitant to stimulate. They know 
that, uh, you know, that, that there's only so much they can do to the real estate market because it's just been so overblown. We go back in time, you know, revisiting, let's say back 2005, 06, 07, there was a time when the Chinese government was building cities only to knock them down and build over them. And there's this legacy of these ghost cities, this overhang in the real estate market that started over a decade ago. And it's really beginning to catch up in a number of different ways. We've got headlines of Evergrande declaring Chapter 15 bankruptcy, Country Garden missing on payments and potentially not uh, making future payments on the interest of their debt tranches. And the Chinese real estate market, it is the largest of any asset class. At least if we believe the numbers over there, it's between 60 and $65 trillion of total assets. And there are a lot of problems with rekindling that market with so much slack. And on the other side of it, there was the great hope about the Chinese consumer and the idea that, you know, this burgeoning Chinese middle class of 600, 700 million with a large amount of savings from the COVID era, that they'd get back to spending, that somehow they'd be reinvigorated by the reopening truly get back out there and start to carry the weight of the economy that was once so driven by real estate and of course exports. But we see this shifting paradigm with reshoring and friendshoring that the export market has also fallen off. So that third pillar, the Chinese consumer, they're not engaging. And it feels like the Chinese economy itself is sort of grinding to, the, to a halt. You've got this authoritarian leadership that doesn't seem to really want to encourage that economic dynamism that we had seen in some of the free trade zones. Technology was once a place where there was a lot of excitement, where there was a lot of growth. But ever since the ill-fated Ant IPO and all the sort of heavy, you know, handed, ham-fisted crackdowns in the name of corruption, whatever it really is, you know, maybe that's a whole different theme altogether, wanting to monopolize power. But it's it's reduced the confidence. It's, it's really impacted negatively the psychology of the Chinese working class, the Chinese middle class, as well as foreign investors and local entrepreneurs. And it feels like we're kind of in this situation where there are not a lot of good options for the Chinese government and, uh, and and for this leadership that doesn't seem to be particularly concerned about stimulating the Chinese economy, despite at this point, almost a year of promises. Weston, what's your read on China? I know you've, you focus on this area. There's a lot of interconnectivity here. It's going to matter a lot to the rest of the world as to what ends up happening. Yeah, I think that, uh, you know, you, you, you really nailed that. Um, so, you know, I was saying like, I, I, I repeat this all the time, um, and to you guys, uh, forgive me because it's going to sound extremely obvious and kind of eye-rolling, but people have to just remember, uh, first and foremost, um, because this is constantly overlooked as, as like subconsciously, China is not a capitalist market economy. It is not, okay? It is not a secret that it is not. It is called the Chinese Communist Party. So... What that means is that you cannot apply Western five-year DCF models and financial modeling and strategies and thinking and sort of, um, you know, what is the central bank going to have to do or what is the leadership going to have to do in order to, you know, and therefore we, we this uh, XYZ too big to fail bank. Uh, chief strategist, um, you know, chief agent strategist. We believe that there's going to be a triple R rate cut coming, you know, in Q4. Based on what, right? Like, if if the economy is not the front and center priority, you know, it might not be the economy stupid for everybody. And so, 
Um, that's something that people have to keep in mind. And even if it is, the way that it's done is not, uh, again, it's not market-based. It's decisions that are made by a handful of people, of humans, of, of, of men, guys, dudes in, in red, red ties and, and white, you know, shirts and, and black, black suits. Um, and, and one in particular, right? So that, that's something that, like, I really do have to stress, okay? Um, so, like, when people look at, like, oh, valuations on this, like, you know, the equity market are at all-time lows or whatever, or multi-decade lows, fine. That has nothing to do with anything when you're talking about um, a top-down state-controlled economy and, and market in itself, okay? Um, now, with regards to, with regards to the markets um, and actually the economy as a whole and, the, for that matter, the housing sector, I think they respond on by saying that it is a total, it's a crisis of uh, confidence. Um, the, um, you know, so we had GDP figures came, come out today, um, retail sales figures, and like, yeah, they, I guess they were relatively better, um, but we had just an entire year of just one miss after another after another on every single front, you know, be it CPI, be it um, any sort of housing data, Obviously, you know, their, uh, their growth projections and all that. Um, I mean, I, I could go on and on. Industrial production, fixed asset investment. So what it comes down to, though, is it really is housing and it really is the confidence or the lack thereof in, in housing. And it's done by a specific cohort, the, the Chinese consumer that everyone was counting on to kind of, you know, the, the big reopen trade that everyone went long in China and very, very incorrectly so in January of this year that they had to rapidly unwind. That consumer, um, that Chinese consumer, let's call it like the middle, upper, upper middle class or so. Those are people that have um, their their investments tied up in the housing sector. They might be sitting on like, you know, one house that they live in and something, you know, a, a condo or something that's mid-developing in um, from Evergrande that has that they've put down like a 50%, maybe 100% full like down payment in, and they have half a you know, half kitchen to show for it. Um, construction stopped for like years. Um, and meanwhile, property values are, you know, declining. And so their biggest asset um, that they didn't think would go down is, is you know, hitting them in with that wealth effect. Um, the stock ownership is not that high in, in China as, as it is, but obviously, the, the, you know, the plummeting uh, markets in, in China are not, you know, not preferable. Um, for the sort of the wealth effect and the, the, the consumer mentality. And, um, and then, yeah, you have a, a, whole, a whole confluence of those sectors, but the most important one being the yuan, the Chinese yuan, uh, the, which is now currently sitting um, at the precipice of falling off a cliff into a 15-year low versus the U.S. dollar. In other words, USDCNH or USDCNY um, is at like 735-ish. And, you know, if it goes meaningfully through that, that would be, you know, last year's highs. If it blasts through that, that's now making 15-year sort of uh, high, um, highs on, on, on dollar CNH or, or weakness in the, in the yuan. And so what you're seeing right now is you're seeing a ton of jawboning coming out of Beijing with regards to everything, the housing sector, the equity markets, the just, you know, we're going to boost consumers, we're going to um, be, be friendlier to... <laughs> to a foreign investment and so on and so forth and, and, and all these sort of measures that are put in place. M measures that are being talked about being put in place, 
that are actually not, and even if they were, they wouldn't be the, the material anyway, but they're not even following through on the immaterial promises. But what, when they do that, all that does is that it doesn't highlight what, the, all, what they're doing. It highlights what they're not doing. And what they're not doing is pulling out the big guns, the, the bazooka, the, the massive stimulus bazooka that they, we've all seen them do before. We've, so they, they have done it before, um, and yet they're choosing not to do it now. Um, and so why are they choosing not to do it now? Because there's another priority uh, that supersedes that, um, and that would be the yuan. If they stimulate, if they um, ease policy, if they cut rates, what well, you know, with triple R rates, whatever it is, then that's going to that's going to crush, if not weaken, the yuan at right at this level. And so that they can't do that for that reason. That's why you're seeing, um, you know, the actual activity, not their their words. But look at what they're doing, actually doing in markets and what they're actually executing. They're staunchly defending the yuan. Um, they are setting, you know, a thousand pips and above higher on their uh, daily fixings, uh, the PBOC daily fixing at uh, 9.15 a.m. local time. They are getting state banks to buy uh, yuan, sell USD, you know, towards the end of the trading day so that they could have a higher print at the end of the uh, session so that they could have a higher uh, level to then fix off of the next day, and they're putting in all you know all all kinds of you know regulations and capital controls and different ways to um, make it very difficult to sell you on, and um, and that that's the actual activity and actions that they are taking. So uh, it seems to be that. As long as the yuan is basically sitting at these levels in which like, it really is teetering over like this cliff's edge, as long as it's there, you're not going to get a, a massive like, stimulus bazooka. And furthermore, what I'll say is that I think that China has gotten to this point where they have waited too long um, and, and, done, and done nothing throughout this year of, you know, just macro uh, and economic deterioration um, and, and obviously and certainly market deterioration uh, to the point where even if they did unleash the, you know, the, the post-GFC style uh, massive QE or, you know, massive stimulus um, sort of a, a bazooka, right? The thing that everyone's been waiting for that they have to do, right? Even if they did that at this point, if they did that, I think that it would actually be a net negative um, in in sort of the, the 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 near term. In the immediate term, you're going to get a short squeeze pop up, right? So like, don't don't short now. <laughs> um, but uh, I think that what's what it's going to do is it just all that's going to do is it's going to signal to markets like what what kind of how, how dire is the situation so that they're that they're doing this because. So far, this entire time throughout all of this, like, you know, um, this, this horrendous, like, deteriorating economy on so many fronts, they haven't done any of that. And now they're doing it. So what do they see on the inside that we don't see? Um, and we, we, we are not, no, we don't, <laughs> we are not bullish uh, due to this. We don't believe that it's the start of some sort of, you know, uh, boom and credit cycle and, and, and all that. And ultimately, that's not even going to repair uh, consumer confidence either. I don't know what can, but like monetary one-off measures, and even if they, they're large, can't be done. And they certainly can't be done overnight. Um, so that's, that's what I'll say about 
about China. They are very much painted and kind of stuck. You know, like stimulate, stimulate and you're going to crush the, the, the yuan and you have a lot of dollar denominated debt out there that's the country gardens and, what, and whatnot um, have to be able to uh, cover. Um, and that's the immediate priority. So that's, that's, why they can't, that's why you're not seeing anything. And that's why you're getting a ton of job owning. This is a really interesting intersection of the policymakers in China are similarly, although in a different set of variables, but they're similarly walking a tightrope where either side going too far has problematic consequences. If they don't do enough stimulus and you continue down this path of economic deterioration, perhaps that record high youth unemployment rate that's so high they stop telling us how high it is, could start to lead to some social unrest, sort of like the later stages of the COVID lockdowns did, particularly among those demographics. At the same time, if they do too much, this is a country that is very reliant on imports. It needs a lot of energy from other sources. And if prices go high, that can start to create some problems at home. You know, the two factors that have led to social unrest in China in the past have been high youth unemployment and high inflation. And it's usually an either or situation, but we actually could potentially go down a path where we see a little bit of both. And maybe one of the reasons Chinese policymakers have been so sanguine about reducing uh, the amount of stimulus that they're actually doing versus what they're talking about potentially doing. And again, you know, they've been talking about it for pretty much a year now. Maybe it's there is some hesitation there. They realize there's no good path. And it's more at this point about ring fencing the risk, making sure, like you said, these offshore payments that they you know that they're the least disrupted as they can be, allowing some of these companies to really go into a slower default and unwinding process that, you know, could have otherwise been more disorderly if there wasn't at least some ancillary support. But also perhaps not necessarily seeing a promising path forward. The three prongs or the three legs of the Chinese economy have been exports, real estate and construction, and then you know the hope that the consumer would really take a greater role and the opposites happen. The psychology has been irreparably harmed. So it, it kind of feels like there's not an easy way out. And, you know, the Bank of Japan has their own sort of circumstances where it's similarly not an easy way out. They can't go too fast, but they also cannot really continue down this path with the yen, you know, falling over time. And I would say that one interesting thing about inflation in Japan is Japan is even more of an importer of a lot of different goods and uh, energy and agriculture and industrial materials. And so there does come a time where maybe inflation does become a little bit of a of a policy uh, related factor. I know you have some thoughts about this on the other side of it, but I would just say maybe it becomes a factor as the yen depreciates and some of those um, global imports become more expensive and that starts to factor in as the country's government is also openly saying, we want to push up wages even further in the context of inflation well over 2% and in, with the yen kind of getting close to those intervention levels. And we know with these interventions, you know, they'll be short-lived. It's often just a shortable pop in the Forex market that unwinds in the day uh, or two or three ahead or maybe the next week. But at the longer term, without a really meaningful turnabout in policy, that could maybe potentially become a greater issue. I'm very curious of your thoughts there on that in, in terms of how these policies, if taken too far in China, but also in Japan, really 
could be problematic for what could happen domestically um, in, in terms of the consequences with inflation, particularly in China, but also maybe a secondary consequence in Japan. The, the greater consequence being how sustainable is the framework. Obviously, the Bank of Japan is slowly walking it back a bit because it's becoming so problematic, like you were saying, where they owned more than 100% of some of these issuances, which was, quite frankly, pretty alarming when it was all happening. But I'd love to hear your thoughts there, the sort of unforeseen and, and problematic consequences, the, the policy tightropes that these central banks have, the similarities and differences, because obviously they're in different credit cycles and different points in their economic growth trajectories. But still, similarly, central bankers and policymakers sort of feels like they're a little bit pigeonholed here. Yeah. So I think that... Um... Uh, uh, yeah, <laughs> you, just, you really just spot on there with everything that you um, you laid out a lot there. Um, so just regarding the the similarities between the two, yeah, of of course there are differences. There are infinite differences. There are similarities. So and primarily and kind of very simply being, the U.S. dollar is on a war path upwards um, against basically every every currency globally. However, the Chinese yuan and the Japanese yen are getting destroyed and have been getting destroyed because Japan and China are their monetary policy is opposite that of the of the U.S. I don't care if the Fed is going to be if if, if you know um, sulfur futures are pricing in Fed cuts you know going forward. The fact of the matter is that they're the Fed is has ripped rates high very quickly. They're talking about keeping them high. They're talking about potentially raising them even more. Okay, that is not what the policy of um, Japan and China are. They're in policy divergence, and so therefore you get um, a weakening currency, almost standalone, but let alone against a, a U.S. dollar. So in that sense, they are um, they are in a similar way for different reasons, of course. But they are you know um, they are being uh, a, 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 like a, a, a strengthening dollar that is out of their hands is is not is not a good thing um now china has the, the kind of sort of advantage of seeing what japan has done how what and not done and how japan has totally messed up the, J japan is the japan of japanification okay like look at what japan don't do what japan did like th that's a case study right right next door to you um as, as to what not to do in this current situation um and Japan didn't do enough, uh, and you got a lost decade, and that Japan is arguably still trying to claw its way out of, and still has not. China is headed for for that, um, in, again, in its own idiosyncratic ways, but more broadly speaking, in, in its own in its own way. But and and the thing is that they're not stupid; that they they know this, right? Um, but um, again, the they they are prioritizing the the here now the immediate first. They don't have the luxury of uh, you know, these these very long-term plans that we think that they, you know, that we give them a lot of credit for. Like, they have immediate fires to put out, and one of them, or the, you know, foremost being uh, the currency. Same with Japan, too, for that matter. Um, I, I do agree with you completely that um, my point about inflation having nothing to do with Japan monetary policy... The one thing that I will say where they do connect is exactly what you said. It's from the currency front. So if the currency, if the yen gets just way too weak um, to the point where it is just not, not even importing current um, inflation, but it just, you know, Japan imports everything that's priced in the USD, energy and, and, and so on and so forth. And 
so on, on that front, you know, if they if the currency is getting just way too weak, um, then they might they might take action. And so therefore, that is sort of an inflation related thing, but not, you know, it's it's a, you know, it's it's a it's a way to mitigate that sort of imported, you know, cost push inflation um, if, if it would come to that. So um, so you did find that one hole <laughs> in my argument, um, mayhem son. Um, now, uh, what, what I want to say about with with China, um, however, is uh, if I if I can please put out a like a, a like a theory, um, a, a very potential yeah. stupid conspiracy theory that I brought up. Uh, that I, I've I've actually been looking into this for some time um, over the last couple of months, and I actually brought it up initially with um, Michael Howell back, uh, you know, on a, on a mark an episode of Market Death podcast. Um, I believe it was in June or something, but. So there's this big mystery of not just in the U.S. but around the world in DM um, develop developed nations of this this kind of uh, you know almost like relentless rise in housing prices um, everywhere and and rise in housing prices in like not just the U.S. but in in, in Canada in Australia in Japan um, even you know I, I should pro- you could probably talk about it in, as well as in Dubai in the middle um, you know so in, the, in that that region as well but um, and it's doing this with mortgage rates and like interest rates kind of skyrocketing alongside it. That's a very weird thing. That's not supposed to happen according to textbooks. Uh, why is that happening? And it's kind of baffling a lot of uh, people. Now people say that there's a, there's a uh, you know there's a housing supply shortage. Okay, that's obviously that is the case. However, um, it's, shortages are only relative. It's relative to a massive demand. Where's this demand coming from? With with mortgage rates so high, seven percent or eight percent, whatever whatever it is in the U.S., where's it coming from? Millennials who have to now pay for their you know um, uh, student loan repayments and all that kind of stuff now, and and with you know RBA rate uh, hikes and, and and all that kind of thing. Why is this happening? Why did they restart? Why did the Bank of Canada restart rate hikes? Um, why did inflation pick back up? This is mystery of housing. And so my theory is what you're seeing is the, a direct this is where this is by the way this is where across the spread my you know my platform and the whole like idea behind uh you know what i do is to tie in what happens in asia with the rest of the world so here's why you should care about the chinese yuan rest of the world outside of china uh if you're especially if you're living in a place that has uh astronomically high um you know has housing prices and you don't know why it is i think that it's very possible that what's happening is you're seeing the chinese yuan getting hammered all year right absolutely just battered uh, to almost these 15-year lows. And you're seeing capital flight out of China from these very consumers that do not have any consumer confidence to spend, um, and certainly not domestically. They're getting hit on their housing uh, assets. They're getting hit on their financial assets via you know, their wealth management products like from like Zhangjing Enterprise Group and all that who are not paying out. Uh, not just their, you know, promised 7% yield, but their principal they don't have. And they're going to their protests at their, um, at their offices in Beijing. In Beijing, they're going to protest. They're, they're protesting at their, like, headquarters, right? Um, to these, like, wealth, manage, wealth managers, also known as the, the shadow banking industry of, of, uh, of China. Um, and so if you're an upper middle class person in China, you're seeing your currency getting d- destroyed, d- you know, d- d- depleting, uh, depleting in value. 
your your financial assets, your housing assets, all that is just getting you know com completely crushed, and you're getting, having less and less faith in the central government um, and their ability to um, steer the the state the state controlled economy properly. So rich people in China, you, you can move money out of China. You know, although you know you're capped at fifty thousand, but they have ways to get money out, right? Um, and I think that what they're doing is that they're they're getting capital flight out of China and they're just putting it into foreign property in the United States, in Japan, in Australia, in Vancouver, in Canada, and in the Middle East and anywhere and everywhere. And so what you're seeing is, and if you, you just look at a chart of like the XHB, um, the house, the, the home builders index, the ETF in, in the US and the Chinese yuan and USDCNH, they are in from like middle of this year or so or, or earlier this year they are like a, a, a almost mirror inverse of one another the chinese one depreciates the housing index just you know skyrockets upwards and it's due to this foreign demand and a lot of it is anonymous demand um both because of their local government in japan or, or, or in china as well as their the you know the jurisdiction in which they're buying the property be it canada whatever it is um and that's the kind of the, the mystery buyer the price indiscriminate buyer um and and so i want to hear i guess your thoughts on that general sort of um thesis that the, the the you know an explanation an explanation not the but one of the explanations for this mysterious um you know relentless housing price increase everywhere is the is the capital flight out of china that's that's propelling that and then if you do agree uh with that um then would it be would it be you know possible to think that instead of thinking about china's economy deterioration equals deflationary for the world it actually might be the other way around in which china's economic deterioration is causing capital flight out of china and then to preserve their wealth into other developed um, economies into particularly housing assets and therefore is actually in some way inflationary an inflationary force the worst that china does economically it would any of you two like to entertain any of my wacky thoughts please <laughs> So I, Western, I don't think it's as wacky <laughs> as people think, but um, honestly, I think you're you're quite right in many respects. I mean, I can tell you firsthand that we have a lot of Chinese money coming into the economy here, and uh, we do have a lot of property purchases being done by you know Chinese companies, Chinese individuals, and as you said, not all of it is sort of disclosed. Um, so some of it. W could be through companies and various, you know, let's say vehicles. Um, but you're absolutely right. I think this this is an important thing that people, you know, are not talking about a lot. The fact that they've lost um, confidence in their own economy means that they have to put this money somewhere, right? I mean, they're not just going to hold it in savings when even the savings rate is not, you know, all that massive for them. So they have to they get need it to have out this... of the yuan, basically, or out correct. of China. Correct. Yeah. Yes, correct. So that that's the other thing. The, the depreciation is, you know, killing them. And so I think you're absolutely right in saying that, you know, this money is flowing to other parts of the world. 
um, and particularly countries where, you know, the currency. So, for example, Dubai, one of the biggest advantages of Dubai is that the currency is pegged to the dollar. Right. So basically you are proxy buying, you know, assets in dollars. So it, it's not really a big deal um, in that respect. So I think if you look around the world, uh, I think Dubai has got like the highest increase in property prices now. I think I, I, I want to say about 40 percent. And then you have Singapore, which is also 40 percent. Um, you have uh, Australia. Their housing market is going up or is still up. Um, and so you're right when, you, when you're saying that, you know, maybe all of this money is getting spread around uh, into property prices. And, and um, just to take a step back, we know that most of, like, it's a cultural thing, I think. I guess it would be global also. Um, when we want to buy something, when we want to buy an asset, we think about buying property, right? Because that's kind of at the back of our mind that owning a second, third, fourth home, property is like the best asset to buy. Land is the best asset to buy. And so I think if you think from a cultural perspective as well, most of the money would be going into property assets and then probably financial assets because financial assets tend to be more volatile as well. So exactly, yeah, that's I don't exact, exactly like the, um, what I was thinking too, like specifically because they are, you know, because of, it's not just a cultural thing, it's the property boom is what propelled China's domestic economic, you know, growth. And so it is woven into um, China's socio-political um, and certainly economic mind frame, and so of course they're going to gravitate mm. to property as well. And then that, but and and that's why you can. It's literally price indiscriminate. Where you have somebody who would say like, who would buy like top tick or bid like you know fifty percent above you know whatever the ask is. It's somebody who doesn't care if the housing market so-called crashes in Australia because if it crashes fifty percent. They're not thinking, oh no, I've lost fifty six percent. They're thinking, oh great, I got four, I saved forty percent of my money that you know otherwise might have been worthless in in, in China. Is kind of the mindset um, that that is propelling this price indiscriminate behavior. Yeah, absolutely. That that's very interesting, right? Because it's a it's a relative mindset now. So where is my money better? Is it better in China or is it better elsewhere? Even if the elsewhere is, you know, not as strong or, you know, there's a, uh, the, you know, the, there's the prospect, prospect of, you know, prices coming down. So you're absolutely right. So I don't think your notion or your, your theory is too far-fetched. And I think we're already seeing it happen around the world. And I think it's going to pick up pace. Um, and that's probably one of the reasons why the property market is flailing in China because people don't want to buy there um, and you know they're moving money outside the country mr mayhem son can you can you uh give me your thoughts on uh on that uh, thank thank you a lot Aisha, for that um but uh i i know it sounds crazy but you know this notion that china's economic you know downturn may actually not be what the consensus assumption of deflationary is for the world but it actually might be inflationary. And if that's the case, there's nothing that the RBA and the Bank of Canada and the Federal Reserve can really necessarily do about that. They can hike rates all they want to, but if, they're price, if there's a price indiscriminate foreign buyer coming in um, and pushing up housing prices and all the materials that are needed for that, 
then the then those central banks are kind of unable to control their actual domestic inflation. But what what are your thoughts? I think it's a very interesting conversation. And I, I think that what's happening in housing is one sign of how persistent some of these inflationary forces may be, particularly because even if we do have a correction in housing, it's going to be a correction to very high price le levels. And even if rates do come down, it's still going to be from very high levels. So this has been a, a an outcome that was unusual and unexpected, particularly in you know the dynamics where existing homeowners are sort of trapped. They don't want to go to downgrade their home and get a new mortgage at a higher rate. And so at the margin, anyone that's coming in with demand is creating demand in a situation where it's not as if it's a robust you know, booming market in a lot of these countries as much as it's one where there's just not enough supply, particularly in the U.S. And then to your point, if we look at the lack of harmony among global credit cycles, particularly contrasting China and the United States and Canada and, you know, um, Australia and some of these other global housing markets where we've seen some of this upward pressure, I think it's interesting because what is bad for the Chinese economy could eventually kick policymakers into gear and say, oh, well, looks like we have to do more. And as we've been discussing, it doesn't seem like that money stays in China. There's plenty of ways for it to vacate the country. And if it's not chasing housing, it may be chasing other assets as well. And that inflation, that real world inflation in real estate or that asset inflation in stocks or potentially different areas of fixed income, kind of depending where all that money goes, that can have impacts on supply and demand dynamics that can have wealth effects that can you know really undermine central banker policy and one of the goals of it in the united states of the fed is to try to ameliorate those artificial wealth effects from 14 plus years of excess monetary policy and using that limited set of tools they have to appreciate the cost of capital to constrain liquidity if we have these countervailing forces globally we've already seen it i mean what was the beginning of 2023 but a story of not just the Fed being fought by the United States government, really, with more spending at the end of this elongated credit cycle, but also a cessation of debt issuance here, both of which are net stimulative for the economy and the markets, but also with China and Japan, China to a lesser extent, but still there, stimulating, moving more and more into that posture, at least from monetary policy. And I think that we have this lack of harmony in credit cycles undermining the objectives of central bankers everywhere. There's sort of this tug of war. And if China gets worse and they have to actually open the liquidity spigot more and more of that liquidity bleeds into other markets and other economies, then this idea that you could have more pressure to the upside in asset and real world inflation, it's not far fetched. And I think that it's a risk where we also have another dynamic, and that is that supply is globally tight in a lot of key areas. And so anything that adds to that demand, whether incidentally or directly, is going to be another factor that can drive up inflation. I mean, we're seeing a growing deficit in global oil supplies, and China's one of the biggest consumers of that oil. So, you know, the worst thing that could happen is that they have this slowdown, and they're so aggressive with their stimulus that their demand gets to levels that it actually ratchets up inflation in energy and in assets. And if that happens, that could be kind of the scenario that I had talked a little bit about more early uh, this year and late last year that if China is actually successful 
and their stimulus that it could be the worst case scenario for reigniting global inflationary pressures. And I think that that success would come from a place of desperation, whereas something breaks. They say, oh, gosh, this real estate crisis is getting really bad. We better pull out the, the liquidity bazooka, you know, consequences for the currency be damned because the alternative is more concerning to us at this moment. And then you start to see that outcome play out. That, that would be a, a scenario where not only is it not really like a, a conspiracy, it's, it's more just we're in the point of heightened risk for economic and market turbulence and for these inflationary pressures to come back from all different corners. So if that happened, yeah, the outcome you're, you're, you're outlining in, in housing and potentially also in other areas of the global economy is one that we can't discount. Yeah, totally. And and the thing with um with housing specifically is if the money if there is capital flight out of China going into housing specifically property real assets like that rather than financial assets or gold or or what have you, um that is not going to be pulled out either. Like that's not returning back to China when yuan levels get more attractive or something. That's kind of almost permanent, right? Like, um, that's that's long term capital that's gonna sit there. Um, and I mean, like, once they've kind of snuck it out of China, they're not gonna they're not repatriating, right? So I, I feel like uh, it, this higher for longer theme would tie into that um, as well if that, if that were the case. Yeah, I I 100% agree with that. I think that that's a really good point. And, you know, it it brings everything full circle. We talked in the beginning of this conversation about that regime, the implications that it has for global markets, the influence that what's happening in Japan, central bank policy has on these global yields, and then going right back to it from our conversation of what's going on in China and how that could add to that pressure for that higher for longer mantra from global central bankers, particularly in the United States, but to a lesser extent in Europe and in Canada and even in Australia. And I think that this is a great point for us to bookend the conversation here, Weston. This has been an amazing, far-reaching interview. We've appreciated the opportunity to pick your brain on all these different subjects. And it sounds like we have a lot of uh, coalescence among of what, how we're looking at these subjects. It's really awesome to hear from your research and your point of view, what you're seeing, because this has allowed us to broaden our horizons and hopefully that of our audience as well. So as we cap off here, Weston, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit more about where they can find you, where they should look for you on social media, on YouTube and elsewhere. And for those listening, we'll also have these links in the show's footnotes. Sure. So first of all, I just want to thank you again, uh, Aisha and um, Mayhemson for uh, allowing me to um uh you know spew my nonsense on your podcast and <laughs> uh no but it is it truly is an honor especially because i am um launching this this uh independent platform completely independently um and so you know i i am uh, basically building this as we go like the, of course i have a certain sort of model of having a podcast um, and a YouTube channel and, uh, you know, being on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, all that kind of thing. Um, but all of that stuff you can really just find centralized on acrossthespread.com. Now, as of this recording, unfortunately, that website is still down for maintenance and we're, we're working right now to get it up. And so hopefully by the time that you hear this, it'll be up. But acrossthespread.com is where you can 
basically find the full suite of everything uh, that um, that I'm building out and that I'm that I'm offering in terms of content, um, written content as well. Um, and you can follow me on Twitter at across the spread. Um, but basically, it's across the spread across across handles. Um, YouTube is going to be across the spread. Uh, YT, but uh, all of those links, yeah, um, you know, will be, I guess, hopefully in, in the show notes. Thank you for doing that. But uh, if you go to crossspread.com, that's where you'll see uh, as this platform evolves and develops with the participation of the community, uh, sort of shaping it with me and telling me what it is, giving me feedback, what it is that you want to see, what it is that you don't want to see, how, how would you like, you know, things delivered, um, sort of intraday market notes, if I don't have time to make a video, sort of weekly recaps. Um, it would be very much more interactive rather than me just doing a one-way presentation about my thoughts um, talking to camera. So, Awesome. Well, this has been really fun, Weston, and the honor is all ours. We like your work a lot. We're really glad to have you on. We hope to have you on again. Maybe once you've had a time to some time to take a look at some of the broader implications of what's happening in South Korea and Taiwan, we could revisit this conversation, broaden it out to other parts of Asia. But for now, really appreciate your time. And uh, as we close out here, you know, just want to extend a special thanks to our audience, everyone that listens to the Macrovisor podcast. If you're listening to us on Amazon, Apple, Spotify, or Google, feel free to share your thoughts, your feedback, leave us a review. If you aren't already subscribed to the podcast, definitely subscribe there so you can hear more of our thoughts and check out Weston's work because he's an amazing researcher and contributor. He, like us, started off really with this desire, this passion for markets and economies to share his thoughts. And now he's going independent and all creators out there of any content need our support. So do give Weston your support as well. He has my full throated endorsement and that of Aisha's as well. So thanks everyone for tuning in. We'll look forward to catching you next time when we focus more on what's going on around the world and the implications it has for the global markets. 